right. All right. Welcome to class number seven. Lucky number seven. Um, we're on page 161. And um, we're moving from kind of a legal text back to narrative. It's more like philosophical narrative. Uh, it's not like a ton of action is happening, but it's back to the narrative story again. I'm really interesting verses here. Um, so I'd like to spend some time with the text itself, um, kind of discussing it and kind of just studying Torah as Torah. Um, and then, i to move forward here. Uh, and then uh, we'll see which commentaries kind of uh, we decide that we want to discuss as well. 161. So anybody willing to read today? It's English. Simon, you did it twice. Larry. All right. Yes? Sure. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and bow low from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, saying, All the things that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Moses then wrote down all the commands of the Lord. Early in the morning, he set up an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. <coughs> he designated some young men among the Israelites, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls of, as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took one part of the blood and put it in basins, and the other part of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the record of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will faithfully do. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord now makes with you concerning all these commands. Then Moses and Aaron, and Dab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel ascended, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. Yet he did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. All right. So true to my custom, you heard it read out loud. Please reread it to yourself in the English. Um, now that you've kind of heard it, I want you to try to absorb it. Um, and then if you can, uh, maybe what's, what's remarkable about this text? What is interesting, confusing, inspirational, um, discussion-worthy in your minds? So take some time and reread it and kind of make some mental notes to yourself. And then in a minute or two, we will entertain thoughts. Daryl, we're on Renee, we're on one sixty one. Thank you so much. No problem. Uh-huh. 
you. All right. Anybody have anything they would like to highlight amongst the text, either for discussion or confusion or interest of some kind? Are you going to make me work? Well, the throwing blood on people is pretty dramatic. <laughs> yes. All right, so let's talk about the throwing the blood on the people part. So it's definitely um, probably strange to most of us. Um, I like the word that you use, dramatic, so I'm going to come back to that in a second. Um, I, I always like to say, in today's world, we don't like to see blood where it's not supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be on the inside of our body, and when it's on the outside, it's like, whoa, doctor time, right? Um, and people uh, feel like blood is a transmitter of disease, so it's like, be really careful with the blood, put on your gloves, you know, wipe it up. Um, Let's just say that ancient people did not have that reaction to blood. Um, uh, blood was a purifying agent and often uh, was used in ceremonial, ceremonial purposes um, and did not inspire, you know, the technical term of freaking out, you know, when they saw it. This was not a weird thing to have blood sprinkled. Um, also probably because blood was a little bit more of their, in their lives. Right? If you wanted uh, um, meat for dinner, what did you do? You killed your cow or your goat. I mean, there's blood everywhere when you do that. And that was just part of life. If we want to have a steak, we just go to the butcher and it's all wrapped up nicely for us and we don't have to do any of that stuff. So it's a little bit different. Um, but it is dramatic. It is dramatic. All right? Um, which I think is, is very, very interesting. Um, there's a whole, would you say, would you agree with me, that's like a ceremony. Oh, yeah. Right? It's very ceremonial what happens here. Um, what do you make of that? Well, we see this before, where, or later. There's a lot of purified like, blood and you know, mm -hmm. all the temple. So this just seems like another way of purifying or sanctifying, marking the covenant. Great. I like that. So... One of the things that we can look at is maybe this part of the ceremony is something about marking the covenants. It's a nice uh, phrase. Um, I don't know if it resonates with other people, but we may also come back to that when we start to look through the commentary as well. Either on that or on a different sub piece. Yeah, Larry. Well, I just sort of thought that was interesting that after that all, Sorry, the whole ceremony, and this all goes on and all the ritual and the blood and everything else, then you get to verses 10 and 11. And one talks about a pavement of sapphire, mm -hmm. which is the very sky for purity, which I'm not sure. I went, you know, I tried to look in the Hebrew and mm -hmm. it meant as much to me. It was a pretty good translation. Yep. Which is scary, but I like, that's a good translation. By the way, just to pause real quick, most people, unless somebody's pointed this verse out to them before, really, you know, never really everybody talks about this, that the people saw God in this whole sapphire business. It's like, that's in the Torah? You know, a lot of people do that when they first see it, but it's very much in the Torah. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting line that the rabbis comment on, but when people are relaying the narrative, they kind of skip over that, because it's not really a narrative piece. But anyway, go ahead. So, so you have this whole ceremony, then you have the sapphire, and we come to this huge climax and this magic moment, and they saw a guy and they, they drank. All right. 
I understand, but I, I get it. But it's like, what, they didn't take a break and collect themselves. They didn't like, oh my God, what did we just see? Right, it didn't phase them. Yeah. Plus, sense. the other thing is, in the text, somewhere in the text, if not before or after, it's like, you know, no one shall see God and live. Right. And this is, yeah, they saw him, and then they got a meal. Right. Really good point, but I do want to, awesome point. And you want to, the eating and the drinking, what does it symbolize? It's a celebration. celebration. That's something else the rabbis are going to pick up on. Like, this version of encountering God at Sinai is pretty ceremonial and celebratory, wouldn't you say? Right on some level, shape, or form. It's a little bit different than the original, like, Ten Commandments. Don't talk to me, we're scared. Fire and lightning show. It's a little bit of a different... Feel. Yeah. So, uh, w- will you defer to your daughter? I sure. Will. It's just okay. right on that point that, and because it's Thanksgiving weekend, in my Tanakh <laughs> class, we talked about how the zevach shamim sacrifice is one that we give part of it to God, and we eat part of it. Yep. And there's this whole idea of like you are what you eat. So when we all eat the same thing, we're all the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a really powerful moment of like us becoming one with God and as a community that we've like. We're all eating the same thing with each other and God, and so it's like a really like corporeal moment of unity. Mm-hmm. It's great, and that was part of what was so special about being able to offer offerings. And you know, back then we, the rabbis tried to make the especially the Shabbos and Yontif table feel like that. The rituals, almost like it's a very, it's like a mizbeach. It's like an altar almost, and it's a, it's a sacredness to the meal. But there it was really powerful, you know, because you went to the, you know, the Ohom Wade where God was, in a sense, um, and here, but really God is really there. <laughs> I mean, that's what the text tells us. He's actually appeared. They saw him. I don't say appeared. They saw him. So, anyway, Bruce. The greatest miracle in the Torah. This people, which can't agree on anything, and argues about everything, and questions everything, and does nothing but drive... Moshe crazy. He's given a long list of this, and they say in one voice, mm-hmm. "We're in." Come on, <laughs> it's a bunch of Jews. Yeah. How is this even possible? So this, um, what you're reflecting, uh, and then we'll get to the kind of spin that you put on it at the end. But what you're reflecting is, is this is a really, um, you could read it as one way of reading this as an important way of reading this as. It's a really positive moment in a sense, right? All of a sudden, they're unified, right? Whatever it is we're going to do, maybe that's one way to read it. Or they're very excited about getting the Torah. There's no dissent here in any way, shape, or there's no fear present here. Um, very, very positive. There's a ceremony, which even though it's a little strange to us, seems not to phase them. It seems like it's a nice ceremony that they do. And, and the sprinkle of the blood on them they're part of it. Like the Israelites are participating in this in this part. This is a very, you know, unifying, as you put it, community building experience. The eating and the drinking is a unifying experience. It's very festive. It's a very interesting kind of way of looking at it. And, the, and there's this amazing thing that happens out of all of this uh, unity and maybe covenant making, um, which is God is actually seen, um, whatever that means. And, and we even not only is God seen, but we get, which is an interesting, because you the colon, well, obviously there's no colon in the Torah, but as you see here, and they saw God of Israel, colon, 
And then you would, if there's going to be a colon, you would think maybe the description would be of God, God's self, which is also interesting. What's the description? Under his feet. Yeah. Right? Under his feet. So the, what, what did they... Then there's the question. I think it begs the question, right? Did they... When it says that they saw God, did they see God? Or did they see under his feet? Right? Because it says they saw God, and under his feet was the likeness of path, you know, a pavement of sapphire. So, did, was it like they saw God, and then they also happened to notice, wow, God's standing on a very nice pavement of sapphire. Isn't that lovely? Or does it... They saw God meaning... What they saw was under, under his feet. And what does it mean, anyway, that under God's feet was a pavement of sapphire? That's probably a whole other question. I, I don't know if this ties in or not. But I'm noticing here that God is like, come on, and they're seeing God, and everybody's having a good time. <laughs> and not so much later, Aaron's sons in the Mishkan go a little too close, and kaboom. So what happens that God goes from being this accepting, loving God that allows himself to be seen to somebody that has these <coughs> boundaries that you can't get too close together. That's a really good question. And it's also, you know, you could put it that way, is what happens to that God, in a sense, or you could put it the same question, but from the flip side, is what happened here that God was so accessible in that way? Because it seems like many of the other texts... Um, uh, Sorry, I'm very tired today. Um, created some sort of distance. I was looking for a different word than created, but um, portrayed some sort of distance between God and the people, more transcendent nature and fear and awe and all sorts of things like that. And here God is like sitting at the table with them, right? Um, so to speak. Uh, it's a different thing. Why is a good question. Um, I mean, I could make up an answer, uh, but the, the question, I mean, it's a fair question for for all of us. Um, and depending on what happens, you know, in our class, we may get to that. There's so many commentaries in here, as you know, there's like 14 sources. specifically show that they sinned and then God decided to separate from no, I No, I don't think that that would be okay. um, the model um, at all. Um, but it might, but might promote a model here of that, you know, you, you might build a case that when the people are unified and at the kind of really synchronized with the covenants and in, in sync with God, that that's when you see God the best. And that's when God's really invited to the table when you are more in this unified na seven ishma, you know, we will do it and we will hear it type of moment. That's when God really feels like he's at your table, you know, when you're when community's around and you're kind of aligned with the covenant. I mean, that would be a fair reading, perhaps, of the theology here. It's not the only answer, but go ahead, Rodney. I look at verse 3 and, and states that Moses repeated all the commands and all the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the question in my mind is, well, how is it even possible? <laughs> Tell, say more why. I know what you mean, but because, get everybody else you know, with you. All, all the commands, all the rules fill up the shots, you know, from all of, all of Mishnah, all Gamora, to explain what, what these rules are, what they mean, and it's just, it's almost infinite. All right. So what could, but, what could be meant by this? But is it the ten utterances? But that doesn't seem to be fit expression. But Revelation in its entirety, right. was that at Sinai, or as we read in all of the remaining books of the Torah, there in 
they're in this location and this location and this location and God says this is the law of this and this is so we it's kind of like if you were born several thousand years ago there was less history to learn at this point in the narrative all of the laws of the Torah haven't been given yet they haven't been revealed yet or maybe they were revealed to Moshe but not to the people except then that's hard to reconcile with all of what remains in the other books when they're in this location or that location God says to Moses Moses, you know, let me tell you about this. Now let me tell you about this. So I don't know what we, I can't say, tell what it means. Your question is a great question. Say that all of the oral and written Torah was given outside. Well, they weren't there. <laughs> well, well, actually, we're going to get to that. Um, but there is actually a debate about exactly <coughs> what was given on Sinai, um, and. Anyway, there's also, as we're going to see in a little bit, there's a debate about chronologically where we are in the story anyway right now. Remember I, I um, brought up to you last week, and we're going to see this, the actual source for it in a minute, that you know Rashi is the main voice of it, and you're going to see the source for the, the chronological order is not always the chronological order as presented. Um, did Moses, where is this in relation to the golden calf? What already happened before and after, and especially that kind of, even if you forget about the oral Torah for a second, what were all these laws? If Moses hasn't even gone upstairs yet, right, to get everything, then what is he talking about? You know, was it the Ten Commandments that they heard and ran away from? Yeah, but they already heard that, so is it just a review of the Ten Commandments? What is he actually reviewing with them? What is he talking about? It's a really good question, right? I, I, I'm not the, avoiding the answer, but I the, no. the text will help us answer that and so on. So anybody else? You want to? Yeah. Um, two things. First, mm-hmm. I also was. I can, I'm sorry, I don't hear you. Me. Renee. Renee. I also was struck by the mention of Nadav and Avihu, uh-huh. um, and the fact that Elazar and Itamar, the other two sons, aren't mentioned. True. Like, it's it's as if El- Nadav and Avihu are Aaron's only sons who come up. And then it's like so interesting with the story that happens later that Nadav and Avihu are killed and Elazar and Itamar are called the notarium. They're called like the leftovers. Mm-hmm. But then they actually take up the mantle of the priesthood. So like, I wonder if this, I've never thought about it before. I wonder if this is the moment that sort of like created something in Nadav and Avihu that they then show temporally probably not that long after this, like in the actual chronology of the Torah, the time between this moment and when they're killed is probably like only maybe two months. So this is probably very close in time, at least according mm-hmm. to Ben Summer, my Tanakh professor. Um, and then also the, the fact that it like, specifically says Moses, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, and then 70 of the elders of Israel. And like it's a pretty weird moment for the Torah to be not specific about who else went up, that they're like really specific these four people, and then they're like 70 other people we're not going to bother to mention who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I. I think I learned in Talmud that they use that moment to say, like, any of us could have been those people, but I, it's striking to me that they're so specific and then they go so vague. I want to defer all my future questions to her. Absolutely. <laughs> you know she's in rabbinical school. Wow. Well, it's a show. <laughs> um, do this for 10 hours a day every day. <laughs> what I would say, though, the only thing I would say is that the 70 elders are a group that has been identified before. They were initiated. And so um, 
It may be like the 70 elders, you know their names type of thing, you know? But it doesn't say Shivim Zikne Israel. it says Shivim Mi Zikne Israel. True. I mean, I, I, it's a really good point. I'm just saying there's a, a reading of it that you could just... The contrast between the 70 being vague and the 4 being specific, you could read that. I'm not denying that. But I'm just saying there's another reading of it, which is just... Yes, the, you can really emphasize the mem, or you could not really emphasize the mem. That it's really just the elders of Israel. Um, but I do think it's very important that they list only the four, and that they don't list the other two sons. And it seems to imply that there was kind of like a pecking order, whether it's the oldest two. They got to really be a part of it, and the younger two did not until... They were called up out of the dugout, you know, um, when they were needed later, unfortunately. Um, that these were precisely the people who were, were, were called there, and it wasn't everybody, um, not even the other two sons of Aaron. Um, but I haven't thought a lot about that, so that's a good one. Any, anybody else? So before we jump into the Rashi text, just to, let's just get everybody, the normal, not the normal, the, the way that if you were just reading the text, it would be read, a revelation on Mount Sinai comes first, right? The normal story that we read with the Ten Commandments as, or the Ten Utterances as we spoke about several classes ago. There's a section in between with various laws, but we talked about some of those laws. Um, and then we get this section, which... Um, and then Moses goes up, and then there's the, the golden calf, right? So, but... Rashi doesn't always necessarily want to read it in that way. Um, and so let's see what Rashi has to say. So it's more on page 160... Wait, where's commentary one? 163. Yeah. Um, anybody willing to be the Rashi reader? Is this the English? Rod? No? You're... Oh, you have something in your mouth. Hey, um, it's Moses who said go up. This passage was said before the Ten Commandments. On the fourth of Sivan, who said to Moses, go up to Hashem. All right, so he's already playing with the chronology, right? So right away he's saying, no, 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 okay. I know that we, the normal reading of the text would say that we already did the Ten Commandments and all these laws in between, and now we're now. But I'm telling you that this is actually kind of a flashback moment in the Torah. And he actually told Moses to go up, you know, go up to Hashem. This is before the Ten Commandments, right? Now start to get into Rashi's mind about why this would be helpful to him as a commentator. Like, what could be his rationale for why this would perhaps make sense? Mm, keep reading. All the words of Hashem. This refers to the command of separating making a boundary. Alright, so he's all the words of Hashem, he's trying to define like there's different all the words and all the laws and there's a question of what what is he talking about anyway and what's the <coughs> difference between all the words and all the laws so he's trying to give us he's really being very specific and he's saying this refers to the command of separating meaning separating from the mountain perhaps and making a boundary so that they don't go forward. So in Rashi's mind he's saying look this is a flashback it was before they actually heard the Ten Commandments, before Moses... Because if you read that, which if we were really great students, we would all go back and read that, and we would do it side by side. We don't have quite the time. But Moses did seem to ascend on that day, right? So then if you 
have to go to this, but he actually didn't descend, and did he come back down? Does it say that he came back down? When did he come back down? And then he went back up, right? It's a very confusing to follow Moses' movements, where he is. Is he on the mountain? Is he not on the mountain? Um, and so this is like, this is before, and that's when he told him to separate out. That's when he told Moses he would be going up. The words that God shared with him, all the words were about, hey, you guys are going to stay over here. This is where the mountain is. This is the plan. We're going to go up, you know, a little bit. He's explaining God's laws. And then, then sorry, words. And then the laws are... The seven commandments, which the sons of Noah were commanded to observe. And Shabbat, honoring one's father and mother, the law of the red cow, and civil laws were forgiven to them at Mara. So what is, what, forgetting the specifics of his answers for a second, what is he trying to do there? Do you understand this move? What, what's he trying to say? He's trying to bring it back. What we're doing way, way before. Yes. He's trying to actually identify, this is to Rod's point, the laws that were given before the moment. What are the laws? No, not the future, the Talmud, you know, and not even what happened after, right? Not even the laws that are going to be given over time in the, in the Midbar, right? He's trying to identify the laws that were literally given before so that they can review what they do know of God's will up until this point. Um, and you'd have to go back and trace where did each of these come out and how do we know about each of these. Let's just, just trust me for a moment because we don't have time to do all of that. that uh, Rashi can identify and so can we where each of these were given before. And he's saying that's the laws that they were reviewing. We all have to look at the red. Yeah, what is, right. What is the, the red heifer. Red heifer. Yeah. That's the, the red heifer. I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's right there. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia has a picture of a cow on the page. <laughs> 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 you take the ashes and mix it with water. And it cures everything. Yeah. Rod does it all the time. <laughs> 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 in fact, he has a business. Rod's Red Cow. <laughs> 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 he becomes in here when we was you asked earlier. When you said that we told them all these laws, and they said, yeah, we're in. Let's right. do it. Rashi's comment is an answer to the question, what are they talking about? Right. Yeah, that sounds good. So, I mean, we're going to see different formulations of Na'asev and Ishma. We will do and we will listen. But one of them you'll see is going to be, which Rashi seems to kind of be in, is we'll do the ones, yeah, like we know those laws, we'll do those. And Nishma means we'll listen, we'll, we'll listen to whatever else he's got, right, you know? Um, so... Because what, what, what does it mean? We'll do and then we'll listen. That doesn't make sense. It's not the right order. So you have to figure out what that means as well. But we didn't quite get there with Rashi. Um, but he's he's basically saying, okay, so what are all the laws? These are the laws basically that over time have already been revealed. Some of them, these Noahide laws, are laws like common sense type of laws about not killing other people. Like Everybody should know these laws, right? Those are the kind of things that we already know. So he's reviewing what they already know. Certain things are specific to Jews, like Shabbat and the red heifer, and some other things that have revealed, been revealed along the way. Okay, now, uh, you know, the commentary on C, as the, it doesn't say C in Rashi. This is the Melton curriculum helping you to parse out Rashi's comments. But the, the one on 24 forward says, Then Moses wrote down all the commands of the Lord. So what's that going What's that about? Text of the Torah from until the giving of the Torah. So, again, he's going and saying, it's only up until that point. What did, what did he write down? Not the entire Torah. He wasn't revealing the future to them when he wrote this down. He was only revealing up until that point. Rashi is trying to take 
the confusing parts about the chronology, the confusing parts about what this could possibly mean. And in his mind, he's simplifying it by actually saying, you know what, this is a flashback. This has really happened beforehand. This is what these words actually mean. Don't confuse yourself with what they are. And it really, everything is up to that point. There's nothing kind of supernaturally going on with, with these words. There's no revelation about the future at this point, and so on and so forth. What do you think of Rashi's comments? Fit. They, seem logic. Right. they do fit. What's the question we have as good text readers? What proof does Rashi have that this is actually true? It's very logical. It makes a lot of sense. It makes the puzzle pieces fit. It goes so you can, but it goes against the order, and we have no textual indication that this is a flashback. It doesn't say like. Meanwhile, meanwhile, yeah. There's no, there's no, there's nothing technical. Let's just put it that way. That gives us the sense that this is happening. We, we the sense of it comes from that it makes sense, right? Logically, to us. Um, but there's nothing technically in the text that indicates that. But I always find it really. I like that kind of stuff because I like when somebody like Rashi feels he's like, you know what. I think I have an idea here. I think this will make a lot more sense to everybody if we see this in this way. And he feels like I can write that down. And the rabbis that came after him said, hey, we're going to entertain that idea. Maybe he's right. right." And then all of a sudden, even though the Torah doesn't really change, changes the nature of the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's probably what Bruce was saying, but it's helpful when you look at it Rashi's way that you don't have to sit, then you don't have to wonder, well, what is it? That, uh, what do we mean by all the laws? How could he write down all the laws if we didn't know all the laws yet? But this way, when you order it this way, then right. Rashi can fill, you can get to a, a, you can get closure and move forward. You can move on and not have to worry about that, what, what was going on there. I mean, it's just a, it's a nice device just to close it. Rashi doesn't use footnotes or cite to authority. No, he doesn't usually. Every, only every once in a while. Um, most of his, um, Knowledge base comes from Midrash, so he know obviously, and he knows the whole Gemara. You know, you know, he wrote commentary on almost all the Talmud, so um, he and he knows Midrash really well, um, and that he uses that a lot. So, bottom line is, he's saying when Moses went up on Sinai, all he did, all he did, give, give a law from Bereshit, from Bereshit mm. to the, to receiving the Torah. No. Not exactly. That could be receiving the Torah, but Not exactly. This is describing what happens before he goes up, according to Rashi. Okay. According to Rashi, he's saying this whole episode happened before the lightning and thunder ceremony and God coming on the mountain and God speaking the Ten Commandments and them starting and them saying, oh my God, we're going to die. Don't, don't have God be quiet and you, Moses, you speak to us. And that whole thing that we, we talked about already, that only came after... And therefore, his chronology, which helps us make sense of it, which is why Rashi's, I think, opinion really holds water, um, whether you think it's, it might be the easiest read, I don't know if it's the read, really, because there's no technical indication that it really is a flashback, but according to Rashi, he's saying, this happened first, then the revelation happens, Moses, he doesn't get into where Moses is on the mountain, that's something else that we, you, one could study, Moses was already going up the mountain for revelation. Then he stayed there, right? He got the rest of whatever he got up there, which is a different subject. Um, and then he came, 
he heard about the golden calf, and you know he runs down, and so. Is, is there any other flashback in the Torah? <laughs> um, there are. Well, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say this is like so technical, um, but the chapter twenty-four starts the El Moshe Amar. Yes. Usually in Hebrew, the verb comes first in the sentence, and then we get the noun. Mm-hmm. And so, in biblical grammar, oftentimes when the noun comes first and then the verb, at least what I was taught is that indicates it's a flashback. Mm-hmm. It's so, a dot dot dot. So I looked back to see where was the last time that this could be flashing back. Like, what was the interruption that this is then going to have to flash back to? Mm-hmm. And it goes all the way until the end of chapter 20 when Moshe goes up in a thick cloud. And then basically all of Parashat Mishpatim comes in between then. But that is actually like an interruption in the continuous narrative. And this should go right at the end of the ten, of the like beginning of the Ten Commandments. Right. So... Even if you follow that this is a dot, 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 dot in a continuation, Rashi is even moving it past that moment and saying it preceded all of that, right? So he's doing a more radical move in his dot, dot, dot. He's claiming that this all happened even before, um, which is hard because it's a vi'el. It does seem like it's a continuation of the story as opposed to the beginning of the story. Um, so if anything, it promotes the idea that there could be Splicing, um, but it, it also makes it a little harder on a technical end for Rashi to claim that this happened all before all of that stuff. Well, we have that same conflict. If, if you believe that the entirety of the Torah was communicated to Moshe on Mount Sinai, then this could be really confusing. But if you follow the eight billion times after they left Sinai that it says by the Vereshem on Moshe Lemur. Mm-hmm. For the next 40 years, the Torah is being revealed, parsha by parsha. Then, what does it mean that he told Moshe that many years later, but then he told him on Mount Sinai? So why is he telling him later? Because he already knows it. Then all that stuff in the Torah after that makes no sense if it was all revealed all at once. Yeah, I mean there are. This is like again, it's a related subject, but there's a whole set of commentaries on what actually was taught to Moshe on Mount Sinai from the fact that he was kind of almost magically transported to a yeshiva and learned the entire shas um, to um, he was only communicated you know, up to that point. Um, and uh, some of the laws that he would bring down with them about the building of the Mishkan and things like that. And that all the Vayda Be'erad Hashem Moshe Lemur lines they were news to him, right? Like It's not like he knew that in advance. Um, and certainly, even the folks who say like the whole Shas was revealed to him, have it's very hard to do this, but they do it anyway. They, most of them at least claim that he heard the legal stuff, but he didn't know the narrative. It's like he didn't... Mm-hmm. But that's really hard, He's right? Hairs there. So, yeah, because how it was very hard, but that's what the claim is. Like Otherwise, if he had known then that he was going to make these couple mistakes along the way. You know, it's like, it's very hard to understand how he just, was he a robot then? He couldn't stop himself once he knew that, was he going to go down and smash the tablets, even though he knew that if he smashed the tablets? It's like, very hard to understand how that works if he knew all the narrative. So they try to, God told him the laws, but God didn't tell him actually what was going to happen in history. So you have a whole, it runs the whole gambit there. You feel bad because he's 
would he know he was going to die before he even got there, before no. he even got to the promised land? No, because he begs. Well, if he knew, he wouldn't have begged. That he was told. And then all other people would die too. You know, a new generation would only be allowed to go enter the. Well, that's that's the thing. So it's it's very very hard for us as human beings to understand how Moses could have behaved in the narrative as he behaved if he actually knew right. everything, like the narrative part. Two. Um, it's not that it's in total impossibility where God is concerned, everything's possible, but um, it's hard for people to, to, I mean, it's certainly hard for me to understand that too. Well, I mean, there's the Midrash that, that you know, every baby is taught the entire Torah. And then they forget. And then they forget when they're born. So That's what this is. Right. So maybe, That's what so, this is. So you can, but you God can, touches them here and they forget. That, that, I mean, it was all revealed to Moshe, but then it was, you know, wiped away. Yeah, I mean, you could say that too. Right. I, I'm not sure that I know anybody who said that he was his memory was wiped clean, but maybe there's a midrash like that. I certainly don't know all the midrashim. Right. Um, so, um, <laughs> what kind of rabbi am I? <laughs> no, I'm, sure it should be. Yeah. I, I'm. I'm actually working on it. I mean, not all the midrashim, but um, I've I've gone through three full books of midrash rabba, so I'm um, every single one. Um, not that I remember them all, but I'm trying. Um, okay, okay. Um, let's see. I think we should just go in order here because this plays off the Rashi text, so at least it gives a modern kind of read to Rashi. Uh, as it says, Liebtag is, uh, as far as I know, still alive and living in Israel. So, anybody want to read in the English? Nobody wants to read. Uh, want me to read? I'll read. Oh, go ahead, Renee. I have this Jewish guilt. <laughs> 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 what? Was that for some reason. For some reason. I can do that. For some reason, Rashi claims that this entire ceremony, reading the Sefer Habrit, sprinkling the blood, and proclaiming Just to translate for you, Sefer Habrit means that the the Book of the Covenants, and this is the what he's totally reading out to them according to this. The sprinkling of the blood ceremony, not seventy shmas, we will do and we will hear some version of that. I was just going to gloss over and pretend I knew. Great. <laughs> <laughs> All takes place before Matan Torah. Which means the receiving of the Torah, the revelation. Basically, Rashi takes the entire parasha from 24, 1 through 11. Which is what we read. And weaves it into the Torah's description of the events preceding Matan Torah. At first glance, Rashi's interpretation seems unnecessary and altogether irrational. What leads him to this conclusion? What he means, I think, by at first glance means if you're just reading it, you don't, this is the part that I was, there's no technical reason to have to do that, um, especially not to put it all the way back before. Um, so he's now going to try to do what we're doing, which is why did Rashi say what he said? So we already analyzed it, and we actually thought that there is some reason for him to do that. It actually makes things make sense a little bit. Let's see what Lee takes us. Go ahead. Okay. Rashi's interpretation adds tremendous significance to the nature of the three days of preparation for Ma'amad Hasad Harsinai. That's when everybody stood in front of Sinai. I'm not sure why they didn't translate some of these things for you, but... From chapter 19 alone, this preparation reflects a very repressive atmosphere consisting primarily of no-nos, don't touch the mountain, don't come too close, wash your clothes, and stay away from your wives. But if we weave the events in 24, 1 through 11 into this three-day preparation, then what emerges is far more festive and jubilant, uh, and jubilant atmosphere, including Torah study, 24, 3, 4, offering and eating. 
Korbanot. Which are the um, sacrifices, the offerings. Public ceremony whereby the nation's leaders approach God. Alright, so what's his point? We've kind of made this point ourselves, right? That if you take this and you do what Rashi did and put it back and graft it onto the, the three days before the Sinai moment, then instead of this, this, this allows us to see instead of it just being, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, scary revelation where they were like, don't talk to us, and they were terrified for their lives, all of a sudden this doesn't, you know, it, it, it makes more sense to him in the sense that if you knew that God was about to reveal God's self and you were going to receive the Torah, wouldn't that be like, hooray? Wouldn't you have a party for that? And so he takes, he pulls things out and he labels them in such a nice way. He's like, if you were going to make a ceremony for preparing to receive the Torah on Mount Sinai, what would you do? Well, you do some sort of ritual. That's the Korbanot. You would do like a Devar Torah. The rabbi would come and give a Devar Torah, give a sermon, right? You do some Torah study in preparation for it. Um, and you would uh, have a feast, right? You would eat and drink and be merry and be excited that this is happening. He's saying, well, that's what Rashi's giving us. He's telling us it wasn't just them cowering like this and separating and being scared. This is They were excited for this event. This was something that they looked forward to. It's our tikkun, what? Sounds like our tikkun. Tikkun Lel Shavuot, right. Right, cowering in the corner. No, I'm just kidding. The opposite. Cowering in the corner, studying Torah, and then Right, exactly. So, yeah, so this is, uh, he's, he's, he's presenting Rashi as helping us to re-understand the moments before Sinai. It's not the, the um, like the Mitrash that says that the, the mountain was held on top of their heads, and God said, you know, if you accept it, say yes. If you don't, I'm dropping this mountain on your head. Because that is some of the scariness. The, that's the, the, the Midrash builds on this idea of, like, the terror that they felt. Like, what were they going to say? No? You know, like, that idea. So they, so they said, yeah, 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 I'll take it. Get out of my face. You know, stop talking to us. So this is making it, no, it wasn't only that. There's two aspects here. And Rashi's bringing in the aspect that the days before... Um, God revealed God's self were also very celebratory and positive. Yes, I was going to say, do you buy it? <laughs> if, if they were so nervous and so worried, then why, why did they do the golden calf? That's a good one. Oh, you mean if they were if they were so terrified of God? Yeah, so terrified. Yeah. Why would they do the golden so, calf? Okay, Daryl, I like that. You like that question? Well, because I was confused and now, now I know why. Good. <laughs> Um, standing on one foot, the answer could be, one answer for you could be, and Daryl's point, just to everybody, if they're so terrified of God, how could they even imagine breaking one of God's commandments that they just heard you know, approximately 40 days before, and, and they were standing at the mountain and not fear that God was going to do something terrible to them? It's a really good point. By the way... It's a baffling point why the Israelites constantly did that through the Midbar. I mean, they saw God do all sorts of things, including they already saw the plagues in Egypt for God's sake, right? So it's, the pattern is there, you know, that they're already doing these things. Why they would do these things, you can come up with lots of, but I'll take the micro question. In that moment, in Golden Calf, one of the answers is, uh, and some of you have heard me share this, that one of the commentaries is that the sin of the golden calf wasn't really idolatry. The sin of the golden calf is that they were using the idol to speak to God. They lost their telephone to God. Moses was their telephone to God. He disappeared. Remember, if you remember reading the text, um, 
that Moses, they thought he had been gone too long. Whether they were right or not is another question. But by their counting, he said 40 days, and he's, he missed the bus. Right, so they're still sitting there like, what happened to that guy? Right, and they're freaking out. And the only way that they could hear from God was before was to talk to Moses. But he wasn't there. So what way did they know to speak to a divinity? Well, you make a, an, a, an image and you do a ceremony and you hope that the connection is made somehow. So a lot of the commentators say they, weren't, they didn't really think they were worshipping the cow, the golden calf. They were trying to establish connection with God in the only way that they knew how, absent Moshe. You can buy it or not buy it, but that could be the answer, is that they didn't actually think that they were going to get in trouble for that. They thought they were trying to establish connection with God. It was their way of reaching God. They weren't actually worshipping the idols as an alternative to God. Well, could they sacrifice? Yeah, they could, but they didn't really have the laws of sacrifice yet. So, yes, they... If you're Rashi, he would say, right? right. Yeah, there we go, right? They, they, right. Did, they did Kormanot beforehand and so on and so forth. They could have done other things. Right? And that's part of the sin that it could explain God's anger. Is that that wasn't appropriate way of establishing connection. They could have done other things. But at least it avoids the idea of seeing, that, seeing them as truly being idol worshippers on the mountain that God just revealed God's self. I happen to think that there's a lot to that commentary. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but it's, it's one of those classic ones out there. Well, they also, they haven't yet been commanded not to make build false idols, correct? No, they had. Yeah. Oh, they had. Well, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. wait. No. <laughs> Depending on the chronology, of course, okay. um, and, and which text we're talking about, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it, it's very clear that if you're talking about Revelation versus Golden Calf, uh-huh. they heard God say in the first two commandments that oh, okay. you should have no other, I'm the only God, you shall have no other gods before me, don't make any graven images, that thing, they heard that. Okay, um, and then they committed the Golden Calf sin, for sure. Um, Could also just be kind of like a commentary on like they were young in this new following, so they're like a toddler, like a toddler is... My toddler scared me, but he still does stuff anyway. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, you know, and so good. And maybe it could just be like a mistake because they're if they're in their toddlerhood of being Israelites or being, you know, following God. I, I figure out as they go. Just like I've never happened. made the toddler analogy in that regard uh, in terms of um, that they're still afraid like, of you. Why would they do it if they're yeah. afraid? And I'm thinking, well, why does my kid do anything? It's a nice... Monotheistic. For sure. Yeah. They are novices. Um, um, but that goes back to the idea that this is this is not... Well, then when you look with bigger eyes, you see that there's a pattern already established. I mean, they saw the wonders at the, with the plagues. They saw the splitting of the sea already. This is only the third thing that they saw with Revelation. Well, third. I mean, if you count each plague as individuals, but you, you know what I mean. The plagues, then the sea, then Revelation, and, and then afterwards, the mana and everything... And they kept having lack of faith. Um, in that sense, this is this is a, this is not a unique uh, uh, aberration in their behavior. It's part of their pattern of behavior, which could be seen as mystifying. The rabbis, actually, some of the rabbis. When I say the rabbis, it's not like they all agree about everything and they're all talking to each other. But there's a group of commentaries amongst the rabbis that then draw conclusions from that. Right? That um, faith with God and the covenant with God isn't established through miraculous acts and you know, miracles and things like that, that 
faith is established over time through fulfilling the mitzvot. Right? So today you're like, where's my miracle? Right? How come we don't get these miracles? Well, God determined in this period of our history, miracles don't work. <laughs> I've show, I should have showed this group a lot of miracles. They didn't, that didn't seem to affect their uh, sticking to the covenant or not. So you're wondering why we don't get miracles, because they didn't help. Um, so um, people still want them, right? I think, we get, I think we get miracles. Right. No, no, no. I mean those kind of miracles. I mean, I don't know that you've seen the splitting of the sea or no, right, flags. Is Israel roll? I hear you. I'm, right. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Intellectually, I'm asking. Intellectually, I'm asking you to separate between what we would call, you know, the 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 miracles that we're able to impute into what's happening around us, like the growth of the state of Israel, the birth of a child, all these type of things, to supernatural breaks with nature type of things, which was what supernatural means. Um, miracles, which is splitting of a sea at the command of a rod going in. It's almost like more magical things. Um, so, anyway. Go yes, Barry. back to Mary's infancy. I think this isn't the first time. Now, if, if you think back to Adam and the original sin, it's like, don't do that. What happened? Doesn't. And again, you have this incident with the golden calf, and we have freedom of choice. Well, for sure there are. Also, yeah. they, they have been slaves, which tends not to help someone have, have independent thought. So it was proud they were alone in the group process. This isn't working, and they kind of, I believe, thought as a group as opposed to having learned to think themselves. Very nice. They were in panic mode. And they were under that stress of being. Yes, absolutely. Great. So he makes a couple other points. So I'd like for Renee, you were reading, right? You were my yes, kind, reluctant reader. Correct, correct. But perhaps at the top of 165. But perhaps most significant is B'nai Israel's study of Sefer Bereshit. That's the uh, book of Genesis. And the first half of Sefer Shemot. The second book, Exodus. Um, during these three days. Considering that, am I saying right, Sefer? Sefer, usually. Sefer, I felt it was wrong. <laughs> Considering that Sefer Bereshit explains how and why B'nai Israel were first chosen, it is important that they first understood why, that is, for what purpose they're receiving the Torah before they actually receive it. What's his claim? He's saying God's a great educator, right? Or Moses is a great educator, whoever put in this plan for, you know, is Moses just following God's orders, God said to do all these things, or is he creating some of this, who knows. But, this is a great educational moment, when it says that God, you know how Rashi parsed the words when he said these words and these laws, what's he doing? He's teaching them, right, what, before they get the Torah, why they were created, you know, and for what purpose they were became B'nai Israel, so that they feel like they understand their mission statement, before they receive actually the Torah. This is good pedagogy, right? So they're about to receive this whole thing and they're supposed to have a covenant with God. You know, let's sit down and understand how did we get here? How did we get to this moment? Um, so that he taught them Sefer Breshit, right? He taught them the story of the origins of the world, human beings, and the beginnings of our people with Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and of course all the matriarchs as well. So you have all of this as the pre-story, and then the first half of the Safer Exodus is just to review 
whatever laws in the, in the narrative again, maybe to reemphasize, hey, remember, we were slaves, God said, you know, here we are. So recap, review, reestablish the, you know, what does he put, for what purpose they are receiving the, the Torah before, because if it's Rashi, then it's before they actually receive the Torah. It's a nice point. I don't know whether it's true, um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice point. He's trying to dig into Rashi's very terse commentary, and he's trying to understand what could be the, the real value in viewing the text through Rashi's eyes. Okay? Comments, questions? Renee, keep going. But why, according to Rashi, does the Torah divide the Matan Torah account? Is that the gift of the Torah? Yeah, or the giving, yeah. Okay. Telling half the story in chapter 19 and the other half in chapter 24. Right, this is like a five-chapter difference. So now he's asking the question, all right, so... I can see the utility of it, and if you do parse it this way, how I can make a nice Devar Torah out of it. But, well, but why would you? Why would he separate them? Like, why didn't he just actually? Why isn't the Torah actually presented that way? Right? Why isn't it that this was presented before? Because it's not. It's five. Okay, so let's see what it says. <laughs> One could suggest that in doing so, the Torah differentiates between the two aspects of Ma'amad Harsinai. Mm-hmm. Standing in front of Mount Sinai. Okay, chapter 19. As we discussed last week, focuses on the Yerah perspective. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> and this is the definition. He's, he's going to give you the definition. The people's fear and the awe-inspiring nature of this event. In contrast, chapter 24 focuses on the Ahava. Ahava? Uh-huh, Ahava, you got it. Okay, perspective. God's special closeness with B'nai Israel, which allows them to see him. And generates the joy, the joyous nature of this event, as they join in a festival meal, offering. I don't know. Ulod and shlamim. These are different kinds of offerings, which are eaten. To emphasize the importance of each aspect, the Torah presents them individually. So first, before we critically analyze this, what is he saying? Anyone want to say in their own words? Go ahead, Larry. He's saying that splitting it up emphasizes the difference between the two aspects, and if he just come all together, you might not have had that emphasis. Great. You know, being able to separate things down and analyze, okay, this perspective and that perspective allows you to see that the Israelites experienced it with both perspectives. They were afraid, and they also were excited, <laughs> you know, and they were scared of God, but they also felt God's love, you know. It helps you understand, like, both aspects were really strong, and you can look it through each lens, and if we mush them together, it would have been hard to understand the contradictory feelings that they must have been having you know, at this very powerful moment in our history. Um, and then he claims that they have to, pres- in order to emphasize it, they were really put, separated it out in this in this regard. Yeah? Well, I don't buy it. I think that you can tell it chronologically, assuming that Rashi's right, you can tell it chronologically and still separate out the fear and the love. You know, and it'd be much simpler to do it that way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this this explanation is. He is stretching it a little, and you know this. You know this because he makes this beautiful Devar Torah part, which even with the Yiran and the Ahava, you're like, wow, this is really well. At least I thought I thought it was at least interesting and compelling. And then you know the meat of the question, which is why did they separate him? He has one line for that, which is to emphasize the importance of each aspect. It's like, well. Yeah, I could see how that would, but aren't there other ways? It's not, it's not a very deep, developed answer to the core of his question, which is why it's separated. 
the lesson that one could learn once we know that they are separated, right, is this the Yirah versus the Ahava and all that kind of stuff, but it, it does it does kind of skate the uh, core of the question. I mean, that's at least my opinion also, but anybody else? I will share this, though. Um, was that... Oh, I was just going to say, there seems to be an assumption that the Torah has to, in some way, function as, like, one contiguous or semi-contiguous unity. Um, and, like, we could just not assume that. We could just assume that the Torah was, like, is sort of like a compendium or anthology. And so, like, perhaps in its compilation, stuff just kind of got out of order. Right. So I think that's, that could actually be, you know, very true. And if you were looking at some of the theories that say it was a compendium and the authors and editors and putting it together that could actually happen. Um, the only argument I would say um, that would be something for one to consider if you're taking on that view is, is that would assume that the editor made significant errors, I guess, would be the right way to put it. Um, so, yes, any er- editor could make errors, um, but you could easily claim, well, if it was a really carefully edited document, then also the editor put this separate for a reason. Right, so in the compendium... It wasn't actually a mistake. Um, it was done on purpose. So whether it's God putting it there on purpose or whether the group of editors putting it there on purpose, the question still could remain the same, which is why. Um, so, anyway. Right, or it could have been to try to keep source material together. It could be, although if you, if you analyze the Torah from the point of view of the multiple authorship, there's lots of sources mixed in. They're not always together. Um, so it's a good, I think it's a really good point, and we don't often talk about it so much here, uh, about the idea of this being an edited document of some kind. Um, but for me, the reason that I actually don't emphasize it too much is because if I assume that the editors did things on purpose, then a lot of the questions remain the same. You can Your theology could be that God, or you could, your theology could be that there's an editor or a set of editors, but in, in any regard, I guess there could be an assumption that it's purposeful on some level. It just helps explain, like, why Rashi needs to go like this to yes. explain something when you can just be like, it's okay, there could be, a, like, a human Multiple sources. reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other thoughts or comments? Um, I just want to share one personal thing um, in regard to this Yira Ahava. So there's this uh, uh, rabbi, his name was Mora Shapiro, Lava Shalom, he was a Holocaust survivor, brilliant rabbi who was um, at the seminary when I was there, and he was he was older even by the time that I was there, and he wasn't teaching like a full schedule, but he was what we considered the Beit Midrash rabbi. So you go to the Beit Midrash and you're preparing for your Talmud class or whatever for, with your Chavruta, with your study partner, and he was always just sitting there in the room studying, and if you had any problems or any questions, then he would come over. As I learned later, he was actually really legitimately like a Talmud genius, and he's one of those people like, you can appreciate this, right? If you're studying Talmud, right, I'm a rabbi, right? So you're studying Talmud, and I, I didn't assign it to you. You're just studying on your own, you and Daryl doing Chavruta, and you're somewhere in one of the tractates, and you're like, Rabbi, I have a question, you call me over. It, it would be very challenging for me, unless I had studied before, to just look at the page, be like, mm, yeah, I know this one, and just like explain it to you. It's not, it, Talmud is hard. Um, it's, it's very hard, and I would have to sit down and like really go through it with you, and then, you know, hopefully I'd be able to help you, but it, it's not like, he's like the kind of guy, he just didn't matter, all the students were in different years, different classes, he would just go around and he'd be like, ah, you know, and then he, you know, and then it would be like, 
Yeah, it was amazing. You know, so he's really like legitimately like really really smart. Um, I'm going to tell you one other quick little story about him, and then I'll relate it back to here. Um, I felt very blessed. I was one of those Beit Midrash nerds that I like. I was studying there a lot, and I like I really liked Talmud and other types of study. And I had a chavruta who did too. And sometimes we were there even like later in the evening when it wasn't like chavruta time when everybody else was there. So there was like a few chavrutas, a few groups of people studying. And, you know, we created a special relationship with him. And um, when it was time for him, for Pesach in particular, but he did this for all the chagim, he would go around um, to the, the baby drosh rats and he would put a bottle on our table. And it was homemade wine. And at first, I didn't, well, there's more to the story. So at first, I was like, wow, that's so nice. He gave us the wine, and I still feel that way. You know, he was doing it to the students that he felt like, you know, were really giving it their, their all. And then, you know, um, I, you know, I kind of just one time asked him, I'm like, it's so nice, you know, is there, do you make your own, like, you make your own wine? Like, how do you know about that? And then he told me the story. I'll try to keep it really short, like which is just, he survived the Holocaust by his parents um, well, it was really the rabbi and some other people in his community because he was such a great Talmud student that they were the community wanted to make sure he lived. So the community gave money to his parents to find a farmer, you know, out in the fields, you know, to, to, to protect him during the time of the Holocaust, and they sent him to live. And when things got really dicey and farmhouses were being searched, they sent him to live in a cave on their property, and they would bring him food at various points, um, but he was basically needed to stay in the cave the whole time. And this was a farm family. They were not literate. They didn't really have books. And he said he basically kept himself sane with two things. He repeated all the text that he knew in his head over and over again. He like studied with himself in his own mind. And the other thing that he did is that the, they had a vineyards, um, and he kind of taught himself like everything that there is to know about experimenting with the grapes because that's all he had to play with, you know. Um, and he learned how to make his own wine um, basically during the time of the Holocaust while he was living in a cave. Um, and so he determined that when he came back, he was going to turn the, the wine of his oppression type of thing into the wine of joy, right? And that he would take that skill that he learned in this very horrible time of his life and he would try to give it as joy to other people. And, you know, this is the story of this bottle of wine. So for that, that Pesach was like, wow. I was like, I didn't even want to drink the wine. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, this is probably idolatry, but I just kind of want to, like, keep it forever. But I didn't. So I did drink the wine because he told me to. Um, he's like, he said, well, will you use it? I said, of course I'm going to use it. So we, I did. Um, but he gave a Devar Torah. It was actually on Shavuot, Shavuot because it's appropriate for the revelation. He talked about how, you know, there's the aspect of God that's Yirah, that's awe. And he actually, his example of Yirah was the Revelation story similar to Liebtag, as opposed to this chapter 24, he was talking about chapter 19. He didn't use, he didn't use our chapter as Ahava, by the way, but he, he used actually, ironically, Ahava for him was during the Holocaust. And he said that the Ahava was is that people in the Mount Sinai followed the commandments because they were afraid of God. He said people during the Holocaust followed the commandments when they could because they loved God and they loved the covenant because he said, obviously, if you were in the Holocaust and you were fearful of your life for doing anything Jewish, 
you know, that would have been acceptable to not do it. So people who still organize minyanim and try to do this, that, and the other thing, even during the Holocaust, celebrate Shabbat, light a candle, do something like that, they did it purely out of love. They did it because that's what they wanted to do and they wanted to serve God. And that was his version of Yira and Ahava, which Lieb Tag is saying, what we study tonight is the Ahava. Um, but, you know, they're both nice models. That, so this idea that God has these two aspects of Yira and Ahava, and that we as human beings can relate to those two aspects of God, is, it's, it's an established thing in kind of Jewish tradition. Um, and people have used that interpretation in different ways, and he's putting that model here, you know, between the Sinai moment in chapter 19 and our, our moment here in chapter 24. So, anyway, I don't know if that was worth the jaunts, but um, that was something I wanted to share. Uh, all right. Um, I really like this next text. Maybe I'll take over the reading for this text because it's long, um, and I want to, uh, maybe I can, so I can jump into it, but because I like Hasidic, so um, this is a Hasidic text. Um, uh, oh, sorry, 166. It's just coming. I'm this. I did this last week. I don't usually, but I'm going in order these two weeks. Um, I just feel like these build on each other, and then if we get as far as uh, commentary, like five or six, um, which we probably won't, then I would jump all the way to commentary 12 but um, or 11, but I, I don't think we're going to get there. Um, it would seem that we could explain it all simply in this way. The seven Noahide laws, Shabbat, honoring one's mother or father, and civil laws are ethical laws that common sense calls for them in addition to them being basic laws of state which society would not be able to survive without. What's he he's talking about? He's talking about what did Moses actually teach these folks when it says that he taught them the words of God and the laws. We, we started talking about this before. His claim is similar, in, in essence, to Liebtag, right, who said some of those very same things about it. Um, or was it, you know, and, and perhaps Rashi itself. But he was saying that this idea of Sefer Breshid and half of Sefer Shemot type of idea... So he's conceptualizing it a little differently, and he said, yes, the seven Noahide laws, Shabbat, he adds honoring one's father and mother, and civil laws and ethical laws. Why? Because they are common sense. So he's creating a category that what did Moshe go over with them before they received everything or before they understood? All the things that one could derive as what one should do from being a human being living in a world where God lives, right, also with us. These are things that we could derive without having a specific revelation of God, without having a specific body of information given to us to say, these are the laws. You should be able to figure these things out, essentially, is what he's saying, on your own. That's the stuff that Moshe reviewed with them in advance. Uh, But... It is also known that we, the nation of the children of Israel, are obligated to fulfill all the commands of the sacred Torah, even the logical ones, in order to do the will of our Creator. Right? So we also know that there's actually a sacred Torah. Right? As Jews, we know that there's actually a Torah, and it has a bunch of things that it says in it. Um, and we have to, to follow them in order to do the will of our Creator. Right? Even and included inside those sacred laws are the ones that he calls the logical laws. Right, so he's doing uh, two moves here that are at the same time. One is he's saying there are such things as logical laws, meaning it doesn't mean that they just make sense, but that one can figure out without having a specific divine revelation. Right, there are certain laws of the universe that a human being in relationship to God should be able to figure out. You can figure them out. 
right? With yourself, with your brain, if you needed to. Right? With your heart and your brain, maybe he's a chassid, so it's probably his heart is involved as well. With your heart and your brain, you can figure these things out. And not only that, but of course we know that there's actually the Torah. And in the Torah are often a restatement of those very laws as well. The Torah is not separate from those logical laws. The Torah laws also include both the ones you can figure out and the ones that you can't figure out. Are you with me? Yeah, okay. All right, so for us there's no difference between logical laws and laws that build discipline. They all must be fulfilled because he commanded us to do so from our creator, and this pleases him. So now he's saying something a little bit more difficult, which you know maybe people would want to push back against. He's saying it doesn't matter which kind of law it is, Right? Even if it's logical, it has a rationale. You don't do it because it's logical or it has a rationale. That's how you figure out what it is. But, but you don't do it because it's logical. You do it, why? Because God said so. Right? And you want to please God. Right? You want to please God. You want to do... He's almost like, um, I know this is Lahav deal. It's just to make a point. I'm not really saying this. Right? But, you know, you know, what would Jesus do type of thing? That's what Christians often say. He's saying like a Jewish version of it. Like in your brain should be, what would please God? What would please God? Right? What would God want you to do? What would God want you to do? Right? Um, that's what he's saying. And this is why Moshe, our teacher, may peace be upon him, reviewed with the Israelites prior to giving the law giving of the Torah, the seven laws and laws of Marah, so they could accept them as commands of the Creator and not because they're ethical. So what was the purpose of Moses reviewing the laws? Because what he's fighting against is an argument that says, okay, I hear all the commentaries that tell us that he was sharing those Noahide laws and the keeping Shabbat and a few of these things. Why did he need to review them right there? God was about to say them, right? God was going to reveal them in the Ten Commandments, and then Moses was going to go Mount Sinai and learn all these other laws and then come down and tell them. So what did... What was, what was so special about needing to review the laws up until now? I mean, why does he need to do that? So Lieb Tag says it's educational, right? You know, where it explains where we've been and how, how, why we're here and the purpose because he's dealing with that question himself. But the straight-up commentaries that says, oh, it was about the laws that came before, they either knew the laws that came before, God was going to explain it to them anyway in a minute. He's saying it's for the purpose of saying that the logical laws, the laws that might have been derived already, right? Are also God's are also God's laws. They're not two different things. It's not like God's law and natural law, right? Sacred law, law that I can intuit from the universe on my own. These are, there's no secular and sacred categories. It doesn't exist. Everything's sacred, right? It's all God. And the reason that Moses had to explain all these things is he wanted to put it in the context of Revelation, explaining it on the, at, the, at the mountain. These were God's laws, even though we didn't have them as revelation, and that's going to be God's laws as well. They're all, they're all part of God's law. And, and anytime you can stop me or comment, I'm just you know, continuing to read through. The difference between a person who acts out of logic and one who acts on the commands of the Creator is this. Then, did you have a question? Oh, I didn't, I didn't hear you. Yeah, go, go. No, the Noah high laws, those were revealed at the time of the flood, and the laws of Shabbat, those were revealed at the time of so those are revealed laws as well. Um, you could look at it that way. The Noahide laws, interestingly, they're not really given as like a set and, and revel. They're they're kind of derived. They're kind of looked back and like, well, it says this and it says this and you know, 
Um, so I hear you, and you that's, you don't have to agree with him, right? You could say, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't make that firm distinction that these were intuitive and, you know, these are revealed <coughs> because in a lot of ways some of these are also revealed. He might just say to you, yeah, that's true. And that just furthers my point, right? That the stuff that happened before, even though it wasn't after the big revelation, is all, all from God. Um, I don't know what he would say, but you can go ask him sometime. And Olam Haba. Um, so, uh, fine. So the difference between a person who acts out of logic and one who acts on the commands of the Creator is this. Now he has to explain why is it important to make this distinction? Why is it important that you understand that all of the laws are really from God and that there's not a difference between secular and sacred, right? When a, this is a, you have to decide whether you think this is compelling. When a person performs a logical imperative, he does it every day for the same intent, to sustain the world. You may say, stay in the world, that's pretty good. <laughs> hey, if I had the Kavanaugh that I was doing everything to stay in the world, I'd, I'd be pretty pleased with myself, to be honest with you. But he's like, that. you, you would think, you, what he means by sustain the world is probably twofold. Um, I don't know for sure, but it's probably twofold. One is you're doing it because you think it's, you know, the right thing for the world, right? It's either the right thing to do or to help people live or to perpetuate your life <laughs> or society or your community or your friends, right? So... Did you want to say more, Renee? No, I just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I read it as to maintain order and purpose in your own life. Wonderful. And for the community around you, perhaps. Couldn't exist without it, which is the which is actually what he said before. The basic laws of state which society would not be able to survive without. I think they are parallel to each other. I think he would agree with that. But if he performs it because of the creator's command, then every day he does it for a different reason. Since each day his love and fear of God increases, he ends up doing the command with greater verve, even the logical ones, of course. What's his claim? If you do it to please God, then what? You're just more forceful with it. The bottom line result is going to be that you're going to have renewed energy for it, but why? Because each time that you come to it, there's going to be a different feel, a different aspect, a different reason, in a sense, why you're doing it. It's not for the same reason of making the world work the way that it needs to work or, you know, something very logical or connected. If you do it because it pleases God, it's like relationships, right? We can do the same act, but often we're moved to do it for different reasons. And as our relationships develop, the the actions that we take towards each other mean different things. This is kind of how he's viewing it. The Hasidim were really into relationships and pre-psychology and all that kind of stuff. And they saw this as an evolving thing. You know, it's, it's, when you create that relationship with God and you do it out of love and you do it be- to please God, then it means something different each and every time. But each time you do it, it creates a connection <coughs> with God. Mm-hmm. And that changes your, your perspective and your life. Mm-hmm. It, it makes everything more meaningful. Right. It's like when people say, why do we read the same Torah every year? Right. Are we getting tired of this Torah? No. I mean, because we're, di- you know, we're different. The Torah is the same. We're different. What we know is different, our perspective is different, the experience we had was different. It's the same thing for him when, in regards to if you do it for the sake of the relationship with God, then each time you come to the mitzvah, it's going to be a different relationship to the mitzvah. Um, you know, I don't know whether that resonates with you, whether you think, hey, I like that little Hasidic teaching, or... Uh, okay, but it's, it's, it's something to think about, it's something to think about. Therefore, when he reviewed with them the commands that they had already performed, they understood that they did not do them correctly. 
And that is why they said, all that God has said we will perform. He's trying to understand, what's with this? All that God said we will perform or not, seven ishma, like we'll do it and then we'll hear it. What could this possibly mean? He, he, what he's saying it means is, oh my gosh, right? I didn't understand that all these things that we had previously done, right, were done in the wrong kind of spirit. So now, you know, I'm going to say, okay, you know, all that God said before, now I realize that it was God that said it, and I'm, I'm going to do it right, right? It's like a, it's a, new, it's a new revelation for them in a essence. Um, we wish to do anew to honor our Creator. May His name be blessed. And thus it is written, Moses wrote down all the words of God, and Rashi properly clarifies the text of the Torah from Breshid until the giving of the Torah, because they needed to accept the seven laws and all that was transmitted upon themselves, upon themselves, anew with immersion, becoming accepted through blood and making a pact for both, and this is his key, the logical and the disciplinary laws, and for all of the Torah. In other words, they needed this covenantal ceremony to say all that stuff that we knew before, it's all part of the covenant. We're bringing that all with us too into this our understanding of our relationship with God. And therefore we offered offerings and sprinkled blood and read from the Torah, from Breshit until the giving, so that they can now accept anew the Noahide laws, the other commandments they heard from Moshe, to do them because they are the Creator's will as mentioned. In other words, what's the ceremony all about? The ceremony all about is a re-perspectivizing their understanding of their relationship with God and their relationship with the previous commandments. It's to kind of bring in all those commandments into the revelation um, and to get in their minds that what are they doing? They're, they're saying what we're going to do is we're going to do these because God said so. Because God is our creator and we want to please him. That's why we're doing it. Not seven ishma, whatever you say, God, we're going to do it. It's an attitudinal statement, right? That we do these things in order to continue in our relationship with God. Yet, if Maimonides was here, he'd be like, this guy is an idiot, right? Um, for the, and, and Maimonides probably would say that. So Maimonides would say, this is nonsense. Um, because as, as some of you have heard me talk about Maimonides before, and it's very attractive what Maimonides says. It's like sometimes I'm a chassid and sometimes I'm Maimonides and I like them both. Um, but Maimonides would say this is a very anti-intellectual understanding of the text. You know, this is not, this doesn't make sense in a lot of different ways. You need rationales for the laws. You don't do everything just because God says so. God gave us a brain in order to think about why we do the laws. We may not always understand. We may not have the ultimate understanding, and so we still have to do them all even when we don't understand. Um, but we have to keep trying to understand, and there's a rationale. It's not just because God said so. God doesn't create us in order to just do things. So I just there's another side to this, even if this sounds very beautiful to you, and it does to me in many different ways. Then there's the, other, the Maimonides side. He would, he would definitely want to be in a debate with this guy. Um, so... He says, and because they also want to accept new commandments after he read to them from the Torah, they said, we will do and we will hear. In other words, okay, so we will do and we will hear that's the past, and also we will do and we will hear whatever comes out of God's mouth next, right? We wish to do those commandments that we've already done, but now we wish to do them as the will of the Creator. We've renewed our perspective on why we're doing them, and we also wish to hear the new commandments from the Creator, blessed be His name. So this is one Hasidic attempt to integrate all the different verses that we had been talking about that Liebtag and Rashi also um, tried to deal with. Comments, questions, thoughts? 
All right. You're all going to share this at your Thanksgiving tables, right? All right. I want you to go to, I think it's five, because I just think it's a cool, it's an awesome text to just put out there. It's like a, it's like imagine a bunch of people sitting around and saying, Nasevenishma, we will do and we will hear. What, what could be the possible interpretations? And we just threw out ideas, right? And, well, we're lucky that Ibn Ezra decided to do that. He threw a bunch of ideas out. He didn't actually, in his commentary, which is fairly unique for Ibn Ezra even, because he's usually pretty clear about what he thinks is the right answer, as were many of the medieval commentators. Um, this time he just lists a bunch of things. It's almost like... Uh, for, for rabbis, like, uh, like pocket sermons, you know, they're like, you could say this, this is a good idea, you could say this, you could say this, there's five different Divrei Torah um, that are listed here. Um, would anybody like to read? We have five Divrei Torah in five minutes, because that's how much left in the class. Go on, Mary. He read before the people, and they said, all that God has said we will do and we will hear. At first he told them about it, and they all answered in one voice as if in one voice. Now he read before them all that was written, and they added, and we will hear. We will do means doing all that is written, and we will hear means to hear all the time, so as not to forget them. Okay, so we will do means doing all that is written, and we will hear means to hear it all the time, so as not to forget them. So that's the separation. The doing is to do whatever's written, right? We're going to do whatever it says in the Torah. And the hearing is... We're going to keep studying them and repeating them and learning them so that we never forget them so that we can keep doing them. It's like creating the loop, right? That's what it means, Nasevanishma. First, we want to establish, yes, we're going to do the commandments. And, you know, that's Naseh. The Nishma means, and then we're going to keep repeating them to ourselves. We're going to keep learning, is basically what, what that's going to come out to. Yeah? Is he calling to Shema here? Is he calling? Calling to the recitation of the Shema. I don't know if in this interpretation he is referring specifically to the recitation of the Shema, but it would be interesting. I don't know. I really don't know. It's a really good point. Is, is the Shema then the thing that we repeat to ourselves so that we remember the covenant and remember to keep learning? And I, I don't know the answer. If it, It's more general, like the idea of just rehearing and re-listening, like the Gemara, Tashma, come and, come and learn. It's like a Shema meaning learn. Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Um, all right. And then, so that's, that's, that's one. Keep, keep reading. Nagon said that the words are presented out of sequence. Or, we will, we will do those that are implanted into our hearts, i.e. the written law, and we will hear those received in tradition, i.e. the oral law. Great. So, that, the next one is, what is we will do? Those things implanted into our hearts. Now, I'm not sure... The Melton curriculum says that that means the, the written law, right? Meaning the, the Torah. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I 100% agree with that, but we can debate that. Um, but let's leave it there for now. We will do means those things that were written down that God kind of, <laughs> he put the little thumb drive in and we downloaded it, right? It's like it's, it's there. God told us to do them and we, he downloaded. And we will hear... Here is oral law, right? Well, that's a nice little move, right? Because, you know, nishma, listen, how do you hear oral law? You know, you hear it with your ears, right? So it's a good verb for that. So the written law is the we will do, and the oral law is the we will hear. And, okay, so that makes sense. 
or maybe not, but that's that's an interpretation. Go ahead. Or we will do all those received up until now, and we will hear the commandments yet to come. That's a very logical one, right? Naaseh, you just told us about these laws. We're going to do those, and Nishma, let's hear what God else God has to say. Because if you follow Rashi's thing that this was before Revelation, then that interpretation could fly, right? We're about to hear from God in a moment. So Naseh will do what we already know. And Nishma, well, let's hear what God has to say. Implied also, and we'll do that too. We'll do that too. Okay? Or we will do the positive commandments and we will hear the negative commandments. So this is just, then it becomes doing... Doing and hearing here become synonyms, right? It's just a different verb to represent a different part of our tradition, right? Positive commandments are things we're supposed to do. Negative commandments are things we're not supposed to do, right? They're both parts of the Torah. There are positive and negative commandments. And therefore, it's just two different verbs. It's almost poetic. Now, seven Ishma just means the positive and the negative commandments, okay? So what do you think about these? Anybody like a particular one? No? <laughs> I'd like them as a collective. I don't think any of them seem certain. Well, maybe Rashi seems certain. The rest of them sound like they're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. They don't sound like declarative statements. It's more like, well, this could be. So I don't know that they think they got it. Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, Ibn Ezra is not making a declarative statement here. He's listing a bunch of possibilities. Yeah. I think it clearly states that Ibn Ezra, because Ibn Ezra is often pretty, you know, when Rashi said this, he was wrong. This is actually the right way to read this, and he usually does it based on grammar, um, but uh, in a close reading of the text. But here he's clearly, like, listing a bunch of things. I mean, the, the wisdom always is if there's, you know, several explanations for something. Like, I, I did this, well, I thought it was a cute study, um, you know, at midnight or whatever on Shavuot, of the different rationales for why we eat dairy, you know, on Shavuot. And there's like 24 or something like that that I found. So what's the, what's the wisdom? If there are 24 explanations for why, what does it mean? We don't know. We don't know, right? I mean, that's why there's 24. If we knew, then there'd be one, right? So, or at least... Probably maybe this one or slightly different aspects, right? There could be more than one rationale for it, but not 24. I mean, the likelihood that there's really 24 reasons um, that it's uh, that we do originally that we did dairy on Shavuot is very small. So I think you're right. I think he's saying I'm not really sure what it means 100%. So here are some good possibilities for you to think about. Anybody else? All right. Well, I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. Um, I hope that you learned.